0: This is New Books and National Security, a channel on the New Books Network. I'm Beth Windish. I'm joined by Dr. Audrey Kurth Cronin, the author of the new book, Power to the People How Open Technological Innovation is Arming Tomorrow's Terrorists. Dr. Cronin is one of the world's leading experts on security and terrorism, and is currently professor of international security and the founding director of the Center for Security, Innovation, and New Technology at American University. Previously, she worked as a specialist in terrorism at the Congressional Research Service, advising members of Congress in the aftermath of 9 11. She also held a number of positions in the executive branch, including in the Office of the Secretary of Defense for Policy. Audrey, welcome to the show. Thank you, Beth. What led you to write this book and focus on emerging technology?
1: Well, about five years ago, I started to feel yeah. as if the work that I was doing on security and especially terrorism and counterterrorism was starting to get more and more narrow. And it was answering smaller and smaller questions with the increasing exactitude, but you know had, had less relevance to what was going on around me. I, I felt like there was this shifting broader context that was different today from what we experienced in the 20th century. And in the 20th century is when virtually all our models for analyzing security were built. So I wanted to understand better what was going on. And, and I went to two big areas of literature. The first was military innovation, and it was being driven by frameworks that seemed to me not to quite fit. Things like the revolution in military affairs, you know, where military technology defines these big historical eras. Uh, The interwar period, everybody goes back to what was happening between the U.S., the U.K., France, Germany, Japan, and so on, when they were building aircraft and battleships and so on. Um, And then also the the framework of the third offset, which has a lot of attractive aspects to it, but it does rely on models from the 1950s and then in the 1970s. And I wasn't sure we were really going to repeat what we did in the 20th century now, And then at the same time, on the non-state actor side, everybody in the terrorism field was arguing that terrorists were gonna stick to guns and bombs, which is what they had always done. And every database since the 1960s said that we would have terrorism that would stick to these classic technologies there wouldn't be any real innovation. Uh, And so it just didn't seem as if either one of those big arguments uh, that came out of the 20th century was quite fitting what we're experiencing today. So the bottom line was that I wanted to explore what was different today in innovation and particularly in the spread of lethal technology because I thought it was causing big world changes that are affecting security in a broad sense in in every human dimension. And I was afraid I was missing that bigger dynamic. That's really interesting, especially because in terrorism studies,
0: We can sometimes pursue a narrow focus on ideology, but in order for these attacks to take place, the terrorist has to have the means to commit violence. Can you talk about how that relates to your study of technology?
1: Absolutely, Beth. I've been working on terrorism and counterterrorism for decades, and I think it is important that we understand or that we know the enemy, as Sun Tzu might have said. But even once you understand the motivations and the ideologies and the logic behind terrorist campaigns, you have to also realize that those ideologies, in many cases, date back centuries. But what's important is the ability to act upon those ideas. You cannot have just a focus on ideology without understanding the importance of means.
0: In looking at these means, you identify an analog in the past, and interestingly, you make an argument that we're experiencing a time of technological development that is more like the 19th century than the more recent past.
1: Can you tell us more about that? Well, the book has, you know, three big sections. The first one is about innovation and looking at these models that we have and why they don't quite fit. The second one is about patterns of diffusion. And then the last one is about why does this matter for us into the future? So the second part of the book, the, the elements of his history and looking back to understand how lethal technologies spread, I felt, as I did a lot of research, that the 19th century was much more comparable to what we're facing today than, than anything in the 20th century. Because at the end of the 19th century, you had an open technological context where individuals had access to a lot of very powerful new technologies. And they were able to tinker and and work away in their own individual hobby spaces. And they developed things that actually became extremely important later on to the First and the Second World War. So in the late 19th century, you had the development of the the invention of the motorcycle uh, by Gottlieb Daimler, which was... He, he developed that on his own. You had the development of the the radio by uh, Marconi, and he built that in the attic of his home. Everybody knows the story of the Wright brothers. And you had Alfred Nobel, who built dynamite, the first high explosive, which he came upon and developed in 1866 and then patented in 1867. And there was a huge parallel between the development of that high explosive And then the beginning of what we call modern terrorism. So there are really two reasons why I started in the 19th century. The first was that we had a similar kind of open context where ordinary people or, you know, somewhat trained, but people working on their own could make dramatic new technological advancements in the first place. And then, secondly, those technological advances were not just important to individuals, but also to what happened in the two world wars that followed.
0: You mentioned dynamite as a disruptive technology, which you quote the National Academies of Science is describing that as an innovative technology that triggers sudden and unexpected effects. Can you talk more about dynamite as a disruptive technology?
1: Actually, I think that that definition is a little bit more broad than what I believe. Disruptive technology also has to be able to spread because it has to have greater access by more human beings in order to truly disrupt society. So if you if you look at technologies that have had a major change within their own development and in their own separate sustaining development of technologies, those are not nearly as disruptive as those that can actually spread and become popularized. So disruptive technology to me has more to do with democratized technologies. And when it came to dynamite, the fact that individuals could walk into a local dime store and buy a stick of dynamite or a, a case of dynamite for 5 cents a piece and then walk out of that store without having any kind of discussion or any kind of restriction on how they would use dynamite that was heavily re- related to the fact that later on you built the anarchist wave of terrorism that killed thousands of people on every continent except Antarctica so you really have to have two things in a new technology. You have to have the, the ability to innovate, but for it to be truly disruptive, you also have, have to have the ability to spread. And it's the book is as much about the diffusion of technologies as it is about their innovation.
0: The diffusion of technology is critical to the lethal empowerment theory you put
1: forward in the book. Could you lay that out for us? Lethal empowerment theory is is the name I gave to a series of different characteristics that can help us predict and understand which potentially lethal technologies today are most likely to spread. And I should say that this concept of diffusion of technology goes back to Everett Rogers, who was very forward thinking. He he began to write about the diffusion of technology, I think in the late 1960s, but he never applied the diffusion of technology to any lethal technology. He was talking more about patterns of behaviors and technologies that related more to things like ordinary consumer goods and practices. But I think that the diffusion of technology that is potentially lethal is even more important to understand today. And So lethal empowerment theory holds that disruptive lethal technologies that are likely to spread are first of all accessible, cheap, so they're affordable, simple to use, so anyone can understand how to use them. They're transportable, so in the case of dynamite, people could just stick a, you know, put a stick of dynamite in their pocket. They're uh, so they're concealable, and they're effective, meaning they've got a leveraged amount of violence involved with them, more bang for the buck, if you will. They have many uses. They're not cutting edge; usually, they're in the second or third wave of innovation, and they can be bought off the shelf. They're part of a cluster of other emerging technologies. And this is important. They're symbolically resonant. So there has to be, there's usually a communications vector that goes along. There's a a new communications connection globally that's been important, and it was important for dynamite. And then finally, they're given to unexpected uses. So even though Alfred Nobel invented dynamite so as to be able to build the deep shaft mining and the major bridges and tunnels that we still continue to use today, even though he was trying to improve the infrastructure of our world. He was shocked and surprised and upset when dynamite was used to kill innocent civilians. That communications piece is really
0: interesting. And you pointed out a few examples of these parallel developments in communications. Could you talk a little bit more about that?
1: Yes. So there are three key things that always seem to go together. And one of them is an accessible technology and We've talked a lot about that. But the second one is a new communications vector. And then the third one is the emergence of new waves of lethal violence and political violence, terrorism, but also insurgency and individual violence as well. So those three things together reappear throughout history. And we're in a very similar situation today to the one that Alfred Nobel faced at the end of the 19th century. Because remember, at the end of the 19th century is when the mass market newspaper really came into its own. And you had the building of the Hearst and the Pulitzer newspaper empires. You had the development of Pulitzer's newspaper that went from something like 15,000 circulation to 600,000 in a very short period of time. It was the most profitable newspaper ever published. And one of the key reasons was that His newspaper was covering what they called dynamitings, which was the name given to lethal attacks throughout the world that both repelled, but also fascinated readers.
0: And now we see social media as the recent communications development. Can you talk more about the internet as a tool for terrorist recruitment and mobilization?
1: Well, mobilization really has three sides to it. Again, I guess I like the number three. (laughs) But anyhow, mobilization is physical, so it's gathering people to the battlefield. It's also psychological. It's drawing them into um, a, a new way of thinking. And it's also social. So you've got the building of social movements that are broader and connected to each other. So those three things together are changing what mobilization is. And this state in the 20th century had much more control over how individuals were mobilized, and that really has changed. Social media, for all of its wonderful elements, and there certainly are a lot of wonderful aspects, it enables people to let us know when authoritarian regimes are engaging in human rights abuses. I mean, there are lots of reasons why we want people to be able to communicate, but in addition to those wonderful sides, social media has had a very important downside, which is becoming increasingly obvious. Uh, because when you've got the internet and digitally connected communications, you've today you've got not just one-way uh, communication as would have happened with the telephone or the television or the telegraph or the newspaper. You've got interactivity, so people can actually communicate in two ways. You've also got the ability to target individual people because there's so much of our information available on the internet that recruiters now can actually select individuals that meet certain criteria and target them for recruitment. That's, that's well beyond anything we've seen in the past. And uh, you've got the ability for individuals who engage in violence horribly to become uh, almost like television producers because we have live streaming. As soon as you carry out an attack, you can post it directly. And even though platforms like Facebook would uh, try as hard as they can and and will take down a, a, that kind of violent video. In the short period that it's posted, other people will grab it and, and make it viral or even change and put it onto non-trackable websites. So this is a difference in scale and scope when it comes to mobilization that's very, very much beyond the kinds of traditional weapons manuals and other methods of mobilization that we saw in the 19th century. It wasn't that we, we weren't accustomed to any of this, because groups have always tried to teach other people how to use lethal technologies. And to some degree, they've been successful. They've also tried to reach out through new communications vectors. But what's different today is scale and scope.
0: The Kalashnikov is another example of an innovation that follows your lethal empowerment theory. And it's interesting because while the example of dynamite, it was an innovation that made explosives safer and easier to transport, the AK-47 wasn't actually the best rifle. How did the AK-47 become an important innovation?
1: So the AK-47 is an exception in the 20th century because it was produced by the Soviet Union and the Soviet Union did not sign on to the patent treaty. So it wasn't interested in protecting the intellectual rights to the AK-47. And as partly as a result, the Soviet Union was spreading the ability to make AK-47s and other kinds of Kalashnikovs to its allies and many organizations that it was sponsoring throughout the world. So the AK-47 was built by Mikhail Kalashnikov, of course, in 1947. And his purpose was to build a weapon that was usable by illiterate, malnourished peasants who were conscripted into the Red Army. Kalashnikov himself uh, had a horrible experience in 1941 when the Germans invaded the Soviet Union, and he was wounded in the Battle of Bryansk. and a Nazi shell hit his tank and drove pieces of the tank's armor into his chest and his arms, so he ended up on a truck with a lot of other really badly wounded Soviet soldiers, but he was still able to walk, so he got up and walked around the the local area, I think he might have been looking for water or something to eat. And while he was gone, the Nazis came and and just mowed down, slaughtered all the other people who were in the truck. And that example was seared into his mind. He had nightmares about it for years. And so the AK-47 was built in order to try to prevent that kind of technologically overwhelming firepower and to... Protect the Soviet homeland from his point of view. So it was again. It was. It's a very simple technology. weighs The original AK forty seven weighed only ten pounds, and its parts were interchangeable, gun to gun. It, it, but it. But it was also. A, it was the butt of ridicule. It was not a very developed firearm. It rattled. It was shorter range than other competitors. But the AK forty seven, this, this incredibly humble invention, changed the world. Because after 1945, the rate of successful insurgencies went dramatically up. And that wasn't just because of that gun, but it certainly played an important role. And today we have 70 to 100,000 Kalashnikovs throughout the world, some of them going back to the original, the 1947 model, most of them much more recently, but, but they seem to go on forever. And they have changed the nature of conflict in many parts of the world to this day. So the AK-47 was almost like an open technological platform, and it definitely changed the world.
0: That idea of the open technological platform is a key factor in the historical examples, and it's the same things we're seeing in present day in terms of open data, open source, and connectivity. How do you see
1: examples of that playing out now? Well, I would say the most obvious and easiest to um, relate to for me is the smartphone. The smartphone was actually built from capabilities that were originally developed in from US government sponsored programs. In the 1960s, 70s and 80s, things like the touch screen, uh, the uh, voice activated systems, most of the elements of the smartphone go back to government developed capabilities. But now the smartphone itself is a platform that individuals can use to combine with other technologies and build new things. So they don't have to be smart enough to make a smartphone to use that smartphone to say, drive a quadcopter or maybe a primitive robot. It's it's now become an openly available platform that individuals use. Many times, majority of times, for wonderful reasons, but also potentially for lethal purposes.
0: Are there other emerging technologies you see that pose a
1: threat? Well, what's concerning to me are the technologies that are easily accessible and able to be used for mobilization, for power projection, and for systems integration. It's those three functions are now incorporated into our ordinarily available technologies. So things like social media and digitally-based communications, but also the Internet of Things, uh, to some degree 3D printing, although that's not a new technology, but it's with digital files and the exchange of files that's newly accessible. Uh, Mm -hmm. Quadcopters that are powerful enough to be able to carry payloads a small, ordinary amounts of autonomy that individuals can now access. You can, for example, it's it's not that hard to have a quadcopter that is driven autonomously and may respond to heat or thermal signatures on the ground. You can just imagine what kinds of uses that might be put to. Uh, and then simple forms of machine learning. Not, not you know, artificial intelligence is something where People get very alarmist. Machine learning is already very common, but simple forms of autonomy and uh, very simple primitive AI are widely available to individuals in small groups.
0: As technology continues to adapt and change, we're going to continue to see new asymmetric threats. But the argument in the book holds that technology is a space where the U.S. strives for strategic overmatch. And we have some historic precedents where that's worked for us, like in World War II. But you talk about how that overmatch isn't going to guarantee us decisive victory. Can you talk more about this?
1: Technological optimism and techno hype, that's in the DNA of Americans. That goes back, again, at least to the 19th century and even to the 18th century. If you Think about Benjamin Franklin. But if you go to the 19th century, the... United States was a place that was full of amateurs that were tinkering and trying to build new things and you had the development of new magazines, things like popular Science and Scientific American that were specifically dedicated to helping the amateur tinkerer or hobbyist. The Americans have always been extremely innovative and very interested in technology and for the most part that's a good thing. In the 20th century it meant, that we were able to create technological solutions to problems that kept us ahead of the rest of the world. And many times you know, in, in situations like the 1950s where we felt as if we needed to reduce our defense spending and the Soviet Union that was becoming increasingly aggressive at the time could easily overwhelm us with its conventional forces. We relied upon nuclear weapons that we were much more able to develop and innovate with. And in the 1970s, we did the same thing. We used that—that that was what people called the second offsite, where, where we used uh, precision-guided munitions to offset advantages on the part of our adversaries in terms of numbers and uh, capabilities and conventional weapons. That those things worked very well for us. But the problem is that at the same time that we were relying upon our technology and developing brilliant new technologies in the 1960s, 70s, and 80s, those are exactly the things that we shared in the 1990s. So we shifted in our focus because we felt we had essentially won the Cold War and we were in this new world order. We felt that it was time to share a lot of the technologies. That we had developed in secret or in government laboratories, share those with commercial uh, commercial organizations. So you had everything from uh, the GPS and ARPANET, or, which you know was ultimately the Internet. All of these things go back many decades. And uh, as I mentioned earlier, the components to the smartphone; those are all derived from governmental labs and from programs that the United States had been developed in a, had been developing in a closed context. But we shared those in the 1990s. And what we're experiencing today, 30 years later, is the maturing of the results of that sharing. And they're very important to the development of the power of the big Silicon Valley companies, but also they're important to the fact that ordinary human beings have technological capabilities at their fingertips. Again, most of this has been excellent. But what I worry about is that we're such techno-optimists that we don't want to pay any attention to the risks.
0: And how does the U.S. balance the research and development needed to counter threats like China versus focusing on the small-scale asymmetric technological threats?
1: Well, the good news is that the United States has most of the biggest companies who are at the cutting edge of development of new technologies. So we may not have the military driving innovation today in the way that it did in the 20th century, but we have companies like Microsoft and Facebook and Apple. They're developing right at the cutting edge And so when you say the United States, if you're talking about the United States government, that I don't think is likely to be the source of the most cutting edge innovations at the moment. The key thing is going to be for us to work very closely between public and private sectors, between the government and our brilliant companies. And the good news is that it's becoming very apparent as a result of some really horrible Uh, crises such as the killing of all those folks in Christchurch, New Zealand, 51 people who are just worshipping at a mosque, when you have that kind of slaughter, it becomes very obvious to a company like Facebook that the downsides of its own technology have to be faced head on and reduced. So the good news is that I think the risks of technology are becoming more apparent to those who are in the midst of innovating them. How do
0: we ensure that companies look not only at the benefits of technological innovation, but the
1: risks as well? Does regulation have a role? Well, this is not an easy problem to solve with one solution. I think there are going to be a number of different types of solutions that we work toward together. First of all, yes, there are going to have to be elements of self-restraint and the People who understand the technologies the best, companies like Facebook, Microsoft, and so forth, those folks need to play a key role in self, self-restraint self and also in reducing the degree to which uh, their platforms are being misused by lethal actors. And they're already aware of that. The, the, the question is not necessarily government to tell them what to do but for them to realize that their own business models are being severely hurt by the fact that there is a downside to the technologies these brilliant technologies that they are innovating so self-restraint is always one piece of the puzzle government regulation is unavoidable and i know regulation is kind of a if you will it's kind of a four-letter word but uh to me, regulation is such a broad concept. You know, we all have driver's licenses. That's a form of regulation. I I think there are degrees where we have to make sure that our policymakers are more aware of and more educated in the downsides of the technologies that I'm talking about. And, And they put this at the top of their agenda because ultimately the government's top responsibility is to protect its citizens and the potential for destabilizing political violence is getting larger and larger. So it's public, it's private, but then there's a third side to which, which is consumers. Consumers are not being demanding enough of the kinds of technologies that will best serve their interests. The biggest example here is the Internet of Things. It's very difficult now to buy an ordinary appliance or you know definitely not a car but it's very difficult to go out and and buy something that is not connected to the internet and most of the time for example in smart houses most of the time that seems like a an incredibly attractive thing to do i mean i just like anyone else i would like to have the ability remotely to adjust the thermostat in my house or perhaps to open or close the front door through the internet or or maybe to know exactly whether or not the door on my new refrigerator is open. Those are all internet connected capabilities, but everything that is connected to the internet is hackable. And any one of those examples may not seem very important, but we are now making ourselves open, so vulnerable in so many different dimensions through internet connected capabilities that are collecting information on us, that if consumers don't begin to demand products where they control their own data and they also control the access to what goes on within their own homes, for example, we're not going to be able to reduce those vulnerabilities and prevent destabilizing attacks, potential attacks.
0: And you provide some examples in the book related to data collection from products we buy. Do you think consumers don't care about privacy or do we not fully understand the privacy implications of the data being collected?
1: I think it's the second thing, Beth. I I think there's a kind of a cynicism about. I'm an open book. What do I care if 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 Alexa is reporting on everything that's said in my home? You know, there's there's no such thing as privacy anyway. But that's the kind of attitude. Uh, that really concerns me because. At the same time that we pretend as if privacy isn't really that important, at least some people do, we've got the hacking of our financial systems. We've got the loss of personal data. We've got identity theft. These things are not separate, and I'm very concerned about the degree to which people are unaware. You could actually give individuals uh, the new refrigerator, say, (laughs) that is connected to the internet and not even collect the money that is required on your new Alexa speaker. For example, you could, you could give someone that speaker and the company would still be gathering so much valuable data on you that they would still be making money. Data is money. And I think individuals need to be aware of how the data that is being collected on them gives other parties power and makes them very Vulnerable.
0: You also talk about how we're trying to legislate the privacy issue, and you describe how privacy is being handled in Europe.
1: Can you talk about your comparative analysis? Sure. Actually, in answering that question, I think going back to the 19th century and thinking about how the wave of dynamitings ended might give us some insight into what we're facing today. Uh, In the 19th century, There were different responses by different countries as to how exactly to get this wave of killings under control. So countries like Germany and Switzerland, uh, to some degree France, they they regulated heavily and were able to control access to dynamite. And that sharply reduced the number of attacks. In Britain, the answer was to build a, a very sophisticated system of inspections where you had former military folks who knew a lot about explosives uh, and who were backed up by academic chemists were able to either allow you to, to move cases of dynamite or not. And they, they were, they were very much reliant upon a kind of a police approach. And in the United States, because we didn't have, we have a patchwork of different laws. We had local laws, we had state laws. There was no federal control at that point of explosives. the, Way that we ultimately came up with the control of dynamite was a combination of local ordinances and also very importantly self-regulation by the railroads. The railroads were tired were tired of having their own freight cars and uh, capabilities and in their own people killed in massive dynamite explosives that happened because of of moving unregulated dynamite and so for for explosives that traveled across state lines. It was our system of private companies, railroads, who actually played a key role in reducing the number of accidents and the use of that high explosive. So I can see a similar thing that's happening today. We are seeing European continental European countries much more interested in privacy than is the United States. That's very classic. They're much more oriented toward regulation you can see the United States resisting that kind of approach and wanting a much more self-regulating approach. That's got deep historical roots for us. And I think we can come up with with different solutions that work differently in in different states and different parts of the world. And then from that kind of an approach for, for large technologies, large developments that really do have an impact upon the future of humanity, things like The development of the the track of the development of artificial intelligence going forward. There, we are going to have to have global cooperation and even a form of arms control, I believe.
0: So, a technology we hear a lot about is drones. And you make an interesting point on this. You mentioned that ISIS has leveraged drones. And while in the US, we may all agree that we oppose these types of operations from ISIS. There is a potential that this same technology can be leveraged by an operative with perhaps a more polarizing ideology. Given how ineffective our current regulatory environment is for UAVs and drones, what are the potential implications for an actor with a more controversial ideology using these tools?
1: That's the million-dollar question because we have a very delicate balance between individual rights and the potential risks of these technologies and it's not going to be a a, a set of laws and regulations and self restraint it's not going to be easy to work out immediately it's going to be something that we that we work together on with in a, as a society in all the ways that I've already described but you're absolutely right that it's easy to talk about ISIS using quadcopters that are loaded you know, with explosives or using quadcopters to do reconnaissance against our own troops and killing individuals, civilians, which they were doing uh, by dropping them on or even injuring them dropping them on their heads. That's easy for us all to hate. but but it's very true that there's a deep element of contagion whenever it comes to terrorist violence. And copycats go way back in, in the use of lethal technologies by terrorists. The, the contagion of the individual groups looking at what other groups do or individuals themselves looking at and inspiring each other, That's that's got a deep history. That's not anything new. And, and we're ripe for that to get worse and worse and to accelerate. And it's not just going to be groups like an Islamist repulsive organization like ISIS, it's also going to be individuals that are engaged in left-wing causes, right-wing causes, causes that we may not even understand, but where they're inspiring each other, particularly on the dark web. So we we have to see the bigger picture. It's not just whether you've got a hobbyist quadcopter that might be fun for you. It's whether that quadcopter can then be loaded, not just with a camera, but also with a major explosive, it's it's whether we can use clusters of technologies, including social media, in order to inspire someone on another continent to carry out an attack like the one that occurred in New Zealand. These things are already underway, and we have a tendency not to see the strategic picture, which is that there are connections via our new technologies. Between the increasing political violence that's already happening, including things like mass shootings, and our unwillingness to recognize the need to see the risks of our brilliant digital technologies.
0: As we talk about these threats, it makes me think of a passage in your book, which I'd like to read. Uh, You say, rather than attempting to win a war, the new goal of some groups is to keep clashes below the level of conventional war and achieve incremental gains in territory economic resources, intellectual property, and political backing, using the media to build long-term support from sympathizers or project fait accompli. How does the United States fight an enemy who's thinking in this way?
1: Well, we already have a lot of evidence of the relationship between states and non-state actors. And I think what we're facing in the United States and in the countries of many of our allies is what Freddie Clay many years ago called annihilation from within. There's no need to meet us on the battlefield if, if what we can do is instead, uh, or if, if what an adversary can do instead is develop greater ability to destabilize us from within. And of course, the 2016 elections, everyone will point to that, but it's but it's also broader when it comes to the use of internal violence. I don't think there's a relationship or I don't think there's a hermetic seal between high level technological uses by states and low level technological uses by individuals because we're moving into a period where proxy war is going to be more and more likely. We we call it gray war now, gray zone war or, you know, there's all kinds of hybrid frameworks. This is just at the beginning of a broader phenomenon of using proxies that are not easily attributable and causing instability and and violence from within. Why meet us on a battlefield in a conventional frontal assault when it's very clear that a country like the United States is, is overmatched technologically in that setting, but instead use lower level technologies, second and third levels, uh, waves of innovation that seem unimpressive, but use those technologies to cause us to become polarized and disintegrate from within.
0: You leveraged the lethal empowerment theory to discuss what threats we should anticipate in the near future.
1: Can you tell us about those? Well, accessible, cheap, simple to use, transportable. So accessible, a key instance is the hijacking of the internet of things, the use of small uh what we, what the military calls swarms, but very, very small robotics, aerial robotics, a- in order to carry out attacks, um, the ability of an individual to use autonomous systems to cause uh, death and destruction. Where in the past you used to have to raise an army. Um, all of those are are good examples. We've already seen the use of three D printing. This is a very old technology, additive manufacturing, and it's only resulted in primitive things like firearms that are more dangerous to the user than they are to the person against which they're aimed. But that doesn't mean that that it's always going to be that way. As you're able to buy off the shelf increasingly sophisticated uh, additive manufacturing and translate digital files between each other, that's going to be another avenue for greater lethal threat from below. Uh, some people point to what they call robots. I think that's an alarmist perspective on the future of artificial intelligence, but there's no question whatsoever that we need a much broader conversation about where exactly does the data come from that you're training, you're you're using for your machine learning, and what exactly is artificial intelligence, how exactly is it going to be used when it comes to the battlefield? That's something that will That will affect individuals that are civilians, and it's not clear whether we're going to have the ability of weapons to make decisions that humans are no longer in control of. So the future of our technologies is, is affecting all of us.
0: I'd like to ask about your recommendations for policymakers, but I feel like in our discussion you've highlighted there's a role for government, companies, and individuals. Are there other lessons you'd like to highlight for any of those audiences?
1: Well, I think I've pretty much covered what I, think, what I believe should be happening with respect to the private sector and the public sector. I work very hard myself as a professor to teach people, and also I talk a lot myself with individuals who are in government to try to ensure that they're aware of the degree to which there are risks, particularly on Capitol Hill. But I would just say for individual readers that this is a part of the picture we tend not to pay any attention to. And until we have broad awareness of the dangers, not just the wonderful capabilities, but the potential downsides of our day-to-day technologies, until we, have a, uh, until we de- demand more accountability with respect to the risks, we're gonna be the ones who are most in danger. Because if you again, if you look back to the 19th century, in the beginning, technologies like dynamite and, and other lethal technologies were used to try to in the beginning to kill leaders, so and then those those high profile individuals became much more protected. So they were they were hardened targets, if you will, and there was a huge shift towards attacking civilians. And I think that that's the way it's going to go now. It's not that we're not going to be able to, to protect our military forces and our leaders from ordinary emerging technologies, but are we going to be protecting you and me? That's where I think we have to get involved and really understand the broader context of how technology is changing.
0: Well, Audrey, we've taken up a lot of your time, but before we let you go, would you mind telling us what you're working on now?
1: I am actually writing a large number of articles about different elements of this book. It's a broad uh, coverage, so I've got new things that are coming out giving specific policy advice, for example, to government leaders, giving the ideas about exactly what our Silicon Valley companies should be doing beyond what they're doing now. I'm really working on spinoffs of this book. And um, after that, I'll start the next book. Thanks for being on the show today. Thank you very much, Beth. I've enjoyed it. Power to the People,
0: How Open Technological Innovation is Arming Tomorrow's Terrorists by Dr. Audrey Kurth Cronin is available now from Oxford University Press. Thanks for listening to New Books and National Security, a channel on the New Books Network.